Hello and thank you for joining us. How have you been? You are listening to My Surrogacy Journey, the podcast season three. We're taking you on a journey of education and surrogacy storytelling. I'm Wes. I'm Michael, a dad to two through UK surrogacy and an ambassador and fertility advocate. How you doing? So thanks for downloading us again. We do appreciate it and it's great to be back in your ears. We have a fabulous sponsor for Season 3 podcast. It's Manchester Fertility. They were founded in 1985 and have an exceptional team of fertility doctors, nurses, embryologists and patient support staff. Manchester Fertility remains one of the leading fertility clinics in the country to date, delivering more than 8,000 babies, which is an amazing amount. Imagine working and helping create 8,000 babies. For intended parents seeking surrogacy support, Manchester Fertility is My Surrogacy Journey's Northern and Midlands Centre of Excellence. We really love working with Manchester Fertility and the team. Offering surrogacy advice and fertility treatment options for gay, bi, queer and trans men and heterosexual singles and couples, helping them to navigate their way through their surrogacy journey. I hope you're ready for today's episode. It's a really meaty one so much. We've had to hit it in two episodes. You're about to listen to part one and we're talking everything about surrogacy in the USA. So we're taking the podcast international because we're speaking to three guests today, all in three different geographical locations. Yep, we're talking to the incredible fertility and family lawyer, Brian Klein, founder of Klein Fertility Law from San Diego. Also in California is the wonderful and knowledgeable Shelley Marsh from Spring Fertility. And finally, we've got Jessica Williams from Family Source Consultants, who is from the US, but is dialing in from the UK. So hi, everyone. Brian, let's start with you. Hello. Hey there. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about you, Brian, where you're from. Yes, sure. My name is Brian Klein. I am an attorney located here in San Diego, California. I have been practicing in the field of third-party assisted reproduction now for about 11 years. And we have a law firm that handles probably close to 800 surrogacy cases a year at this point. Well, quite experienced then, Brian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, busy. it's a busy location here in California. Over the years, as, as the firm has established itself, I have really seen the number of practitioners and the number of cases grow and grow and grow. And it's really just been consistent throughout my career. Perfect. Well, we're looking forward to talking to you. And if you're a My Surrogacy Journey member, you will know that Brian and his firm are located in our directory. So uh, more to come in a second. Shelley, hello. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. You are very welcome. Tell us a bit more about you and what you specialize in. I've worked in a fertility clinic for the last 13 years, currently with Spring Fertility based out of New York City. Um, I've also been a surrogate four times to three same-sex couples, both in the U.S. and international. So surrogacy and family building is pretty much all I know. (laughs) Well, I'm thankful for that. Absolutely. Jess, why don't you give us a bit of an update of who you are? Hello, um, I'm Jessica Williams. I'm the International Relations Manager for Family Source Consultants, which is a surrogacy and egg donation agency headquartered in um, outside Chicago in the U.S., but we work with intended parents globally, including myself. So I was an intended parent, oh gosh, um, a few years ago now. My son is three, um, and that's how I came to the, uh, the reproductive fertility world. So I feel like I'm a relative newbie compared to Shelly and Brian. 
I've only been doing this a few years, um, but as I'm sure any, well, as all of us can tell you, once you've done it and experienced it yourself, whether as an intended parent or surrogate, whatever, you just become so passionate about it. For sure. Amazing, amazing. Let's get down to start talking about, you know, international surrogacy, particularly in the US. So just let's stay with you. Why do you think people tend to choose the US as a destination for surrogacy? Oh, gosh, there are so many reasons. Um, I think the first and foremost is that it is just such a well-established, I really hate to call it industry, but it is. There's a lot of protections. There's a lot of legal protections, a lot of clinical protections. Um, it's just very well established the path of going through a surrogacy journey and becoming a parent. I know for myself and my husband, when we were looking at surrogacy as the way to build our family, we looked at various countries and the U.S. just seemed such a secure option. It was just well known. It was well regulated. We would be so supported with everything that it didn't feel like there were, there was much up in the air that could, you know, things could go wrong, uh -huh. but there were so many layers of protection. We just felt much more comfortable. And I think that's why most people choose the US if they're able to. That well-oiled process. And I think the commerciality of the, of, of all of the added protection throughout that journey is, is why I think most people look to it as that gold standard of, of, of doing surrogacy internationally. Exactly. Yes. I mean, you know, there are certainly, you said the word, you know, the commercialization of it, and that's certainly an aspect, but I think it's a, it's a small world in, in the U.S. in, in the surrogacy um, and the surrogacy process. And the people who are really established are very established, know how to do it. The laws, as Brian will, will tell you um, in a little bit, are there to protect both the surrogates and the intended parents. And I know for myself in particular, you know, th this when you're considering going through a surrogacy journey, this is your child, this is your future child, and you want to be doing everything you can to make sure that you are protected, that your child and your rights to your child are protected, but that also the surrogate is protected. And I think for a lot of intended parents, particularly coming from the UK, there may be a worry depending on where they've received or seen some information about, um, you know, perhaps exploitation or surrogates not having agency in the whole process. And when you go to the U.S. and when you are looking at working with reputable clinics and law firms and, and agencies, all of those concerns should be alleviated because, as you say, it's it's the gold standard. All of those protections are in place to make sure that it's a really positive um, a positive experience and positive process for everybody. Yeah, totally agree. Shelley, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I just think that there, like she said, it is very commercial. So it's really just finding your own individual path to it all. Like with it being such a huge, as we said, industry in the US, it's good that you do have options. Um, but it's also good to do your research and make sure you understand what those options are and you understand how to advocate for yourself because at the end of the day, you're the only person who's really going to advocate for you until you build that team around you. And like she said, an agency is a great way to go because it's such a cumbersome process. It's nice to have somebody who knows what they're doing, especially if you're not in the U.S. and you don't understand our legal system, our insurance system, the surrogacy process as a whole. So I say the bigger and stronger your village, the better. Absolutely. And and before we come to you, Brian, Shelley, are you are you seeing the fact that, you know, Spring have an office both east and west coast? Are, are we seeing 
more and more people from Europe want to have a, a, an East Coast destination? Because I know predominantly, you know, West was where it all was happening. Are, are we are we seeing a new emerging trend happen with the likes of Spring in New York? I do think that New York is definitely a little more accessible. Obviously, it cuts your travel time in half. Mm -hmm. um, and then the time zone alone is enough to make somebody a little more leaning towards working with an East Coast-based clinic. I know New York itself does have a few interesting rules and regulations with bringing international tissue into the state of New York, but provided we're in the loop from the beginning and we can kind of help guide you on what to do, when to do it and how to do it, there really isn't um, any issues with it. It just sometimes takes a little bit longer. Um, but yes, I do think New York is definitely a little more desirable to our European friends. I was just going to add, if that's okay, that I think a lot of intended parents kind of have this view of California as like the only place that they can do surrogacy. Mm -hmm. And this is no disrespect to California because obviously the laws, um, the facilities, the, you know, every everything out in California is fantastic. But I do think um, that, as Shelley said, places on the East Coast are just really accessible to, to families in Europe, to intended parents in Europe. And actually it's one of the things that we often talk, you know, when we're speaking to intended parents, share that they might not realize is that actually there's so many states in the U.S. Um, that I know we're going, and I know we're going to discuss that later, but, you know, California is not kind of the be-all and end-all mm -hmm. <laughs> of surrogacy in the U.S. Great. It is. And just going back onto that segue with Shelley is like, so creating embryos in the U.S., what should intended parents, you know, what are the things that the aspects that they need to think about when creating embryos in, in the U.S.? I think it's important to remember that in the U.S., the FDA does require a lot of different steps at each point in the process. So FDA labs are going to be required when sperm is deposited, when an egg is retrieved, when you're, if you're using a donor, obviously donor FDAs are going to be required. There are some FDA labs that are required for surrogates as well. So if you're working with potentially a UK-based clinic to help kind of streamline the process, it's nice to build that relationship with the U.S. clinic before you start down the process, just so you understand when to do those FDAs, because we can send FDA kits internationally um, and have the doctor, wherever you're at, help us facilitate that. Um, and it's just a really good way to streamline it so that later on, we're not having to do any waivers or exceptions because FDAs weren't done at the time that the FDA requires them to transfer that embryo into a surrogate in the U.S. And um, Shelley, does every clinic, obviously from a UK to, to the US point of view, there, there needs to be that third party agreement between both. Do all US clinics accept gametes from the UK? I don't believe so. I know that a few of the clinics that I've worked with in my many, many years <laughs> doing this have been a little more open, but some of them are really cautious just because we we don't know how the UK or European clinic is going to be retrieving the embryos, what stimulation protocols they're doing, and how healthy those tissues are going to be once we receive them. So we are taking on a risk, which is why it's super helpful to connect your clinic at home with your US clinic, just so that they can really get to know each other, their process, and really have a great relationship to ensure the best quality of tissues that are going to create healthy, beautiful children. 
And Shelley, what happens if a heterosexual couple uh, have, you know, have had a really challenging fertility journey in the UK? They've got to the end of the line. They've only got like three or four embryos left. They can't create anymore. How would they manage that situation when they think that the US is the only option or the, the best option for them? How would they manage those embryos? They can definitely ship them to the US. Of course, the clinic and the doctor in the US would need to review all of the embryo records. So egg retrieval records, sperm um, analysis or the semen analysis reports, fertilization records, everything just to make sure that the quality of the embryos would be worth shipping them across the world to the US. If everything looks good with the records, then of course we would have to do our paperwork to make sure that the shipment makes it to our clinic in time. And then we obviously inventory them. And from there, once they're in the custody of the US clinic, there would be some retroactive FDA labs that would need to be done um, just to ensure that the person has been screened at one point or another, but that would require the surrogate to sign an additional consent form ahead of transfer, letting them know that the FDA labs weren't done at the time the embryos were created, but with their physical that they did prior and their FDA labs that were done once the embryos were kind of in transit, everything checks out. So it does require a little bit of good faith on the surrogate's part to really understand that part, but it happens all the time. Um, it's definitely more common, I think, prior to really couples creating embryos with the FDAs in tandem. Um, we do have a lot of heterosexual couples who have done their best in their home country and it's time for surrogacy in the US is really the best option for them. Yeah, agreed. And and Brian, I would imagine at this point, communications with you are still quite limited or will intended parents be engaging with their at attorney at this point? Generally speaking, it's pretty limited. I think the the best person to be communicating with when you're talking about shipping your embryos is going to be the clinic because they're going to have their own specific requirements and you're going to work with their staff to ensure that you're doing everything that you can to get your embryos over as quickly as you can. Mm -hmm. So if we're timelining this in our heads right now, as, as our listeners got this in their ears, at this moment in time, they won't be engaging necessarily with you right now. You're going to come a little bit later, yeah? Well, it, it sort of depends because it could be the case that they're already engaging with agencies. But as far as I think it's probably better to answer the question, do they need an attorney to help with the process of shipping the embryos? The answer is no, mm -hmm. but it is possible that they will be shipping the embryos simultaneous to finding a surrogate and talking to attorneys. Perfect. Thank you. Understood. Jess, would you talk us through surrogate availability and how that varies across all of the very many states in the US? Of course. Um, so, I mean, surrogate availability is a constantly fluctuating dynamic, I shall say. So at Family Source, we work with surrogates in 46 out of the 50 US states. We don't currently work with surrogates in New York. Um, as some of your listeners might know or might be might have seen um, the the laws in New York changed recently, but the the criteria on who can actually be an intended parent in New York is, is quite strict and has a lot of residency requirements. There's also then some states which are just legally not great for intended parents to work in. Michigan is one that a lot of people, a lot of people know. Basically, you have to adopt your own kids. But other than that, all of the states in the U.S. are, are great and have slightly varying, um, slightly varying regulations. In terms of surrogate availability, you know, it will really depend on your agency, who they're working with, how they're recruiting, 
who they're recruiting. So for example, during COVID, a lot of clinics um, instituted a requirement that surrogates had to have the COVID vaccine. So obviously that meant that a portion of the population who may have wanted to become surrogates were suddenly unavailable mm-hmm. um, because they did not or would not get the get the vaccination. Some clinics are becoming a little bit more flexible on that. And obviously not every clinic required the COVID vaccination. So there was still opportunity. Uh, likewise with insurance, you know, some, some agencies will require that a surrogate has health insurance, which would cover her and some doesn't. So it will really depend a lot on, you know, on, on a number of factors. For us at the moment with Family Source Consultants, our average wait time for intended parents is approximately six months from the time that we start looking for a surrogate for you to the time that we're matching you is approximately six months. Mm -hmm. Again, a lot of factors will influence that depending on what criteria you are looking for. We also have to weigh up what criteria for your fertility clinic is looking for. So, you know, for example, the, the criteria at that spring have um, will be different potentially than another fertility clinic. So there's a lot of factors that will go into matching, which will impact the matching time for intended parents. That's a cracking segue to Shelley. So in terms then, Shelley, obviously also an experienced surrogate, looking at surrogate criteria, educate us a little bit more, please. I'm all ears. Yeah, I mean, I think surrogate criteria, it's really a personal choice. If you have a great attorney on board with you, they're going to help kind of guide you on which states you should stick to and which states we should avoid. Um, Once you kind of have those parameters outlined and those of your clinic, like we said, some clinics do require the COVID vaccine. I think a lot of them are easing up on that requirement now. Um, I think we're, what, three and a half years in and we're all doing just fine. So that's great. Um, I think when looking for your surrogate, though, it's really what you're looking for with communication with her during the journey. How do you feel about after you've spoken with her and hopefully her partner, her support person? What's that initial like instinct have? Um, it's really important that you trust this woman who's going to be carrying your most precious gift, Earthside. So beyond that, I think it's really good to stick with your attorney's recommendations on what states are best to work with, but also trust that your fertility clinic is going to make sure that she's the healthiest candidate for your journey. Um, Some couples have two embryos when they find a surrogate, some have much more. So it's really an important decision to make sure you have the best candidate who's healthy, who has children of her own, who's raised those children, who doesn't have any criminal issues, which the agency is going to pre-screen. Um, So again, it goes back to trusting the village you're building around you, that they're doing their due diligence and you're really advocating for yourself and what's important to you. Um, Oftentimes, heterosexual couples have a little bit different requirements when it comes to finding their surrogate because maybe they've dealt with pregnancy loss or miscarriages or even late-term losses that having a surrogate candidate who's had maybe an abortion or a miscarriage is going to be a turnoff to them um, just because it reminds them of what they've been through and they want somebody who doesn't have that history to really make them feel a little bit better about how they're going to choose to move forward in the process. Um, I say it doesn't really matter what agency the surrogate is with or what state she's in as long as it's surrogacy friendly. It's really how you feel about her because essentially you're trusting this person to be a part of your family, hopefully for longer than a little while, but it's just really good to have that connection and that 
trust and just knowing that everybody's doing their best to make sure that your embryos are going into a really safe place. Perfectly said. And and Brian, from your point of view, when intended parents have their surrogate, can a bit of a bit of a, a curveball here, but can every attorney work across multiple states? How does that work? Yeah, so I think it really comes down to how you choose to operate your office. There are several of us lawyers that have arrangements with attorneys in different states, which allow us to work in essentially every state that surrogacy is practiced. Some lawyers take the position, I think a a more conservative approach, that they will only handle cases in the jurisdiction that they are licensed. And other attorneys will take the position that they can handle cases across borders as long as they have associations with other attorneys that are practicing in the states where the surrogate might be delivering or where there's some connection to the case. And so with our firm and with many of the California law firms, we take that second approach is that we are comfortable handling cases in any jurisdiction. We just want to make sure that generally speaking, when we're representing the parents, that the surrogate's attorney is going to be licensed in the location where she's going to deliver the baby. Perfect. Understood. Thank you. And let's that now we've got you, Brian. Let's talk about pre-birth orders. Now, some people may ask, what is a pre-birth order? So, Brian, would you mind kind of giving us a brief overview of what that means? And does that vary by state? Yeah, I think just kind of one big picture thing to understand about the United States is that uh, surrogacy is a family law issue, and family law is a state by state issue. So, all of the different states have different rules as it relates to their family law regulations, and surrogacy falls into the category of one of those laws. So we have very different processes from state to state for establishing your parental rights through a surrogacy journey. Generally speaking, we categorize the process of adjudicating your parental rights prior to the delivery of the child as a state where we can get a court order pre-birth. And pre-birth is definitely uh, advantageous because It means that everything's done when you show up to the hospital. You arrive with a birth order in your possession, you give it to the hospital, and this is the recognition that the moment that your child is born, you are the legal parent. There is nothing left to do from the court standpoint. And this, this I think, from uh, particularly from an international intended parent perspective, this is a big stress reliever because you're already not so familiar with the court process. You're not so familiar with um, what what you have to do as far as it relates to the process in the hospital. And so to be able to show up and just focus on your child and not have to contact your attorneys after the baby is born uh, in a kind of a stressed out manner is really preferable and fortunately is available in most of the jurisdictions that we work. Okay. There are some locations that uh, you have to get the court order post-birth. And essentially the key difference is that you have to wait until the child is born before the judge is going to enter this court order, which recognizes your parental rights. Okay, get it. So hopefully, Lister, you're keeping up so far. We said this was going to be tons of information in. So far, um, where's are you keeping up? I'm absolutely keeping up. Good. Thank you. Good. I, I'm, I'm, well, you know, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Um, should we talk about the, the budget word? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think intended parents are always, there's lots of different options in the US. We all know that. And they hear lots of different numbers around what people should budget. And at my surrogacy, we always want to make sure that people are realistic about their budget and they've built in 
some contingency so that they're never maxing their budget and not having the ability to allow for any bumps in the road. Mm -hmm. Maybe Shelley, maybe Jess, what would you say people should be budgeting for for a US journey? I think for the clinic side, if you're using egg donor and a surrogate, I think a healthy budget all in with egg retrieval, embryo creation, PGT testing, if you're choosing that and transfer into a surrogate, including medications for both the donor and the surrogate, a healthy budget is anywhere from sixty-five dollars to $70,000. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and that's kind of what we advise our members with. So that's working out okay. Just from your side then, you're you're speaking to some of our members and as obviously uh, people from, from the UK with, with your line of work. Can you add to that a little bit more? What are the, some, of, some of the numbers and budgets that you're looking at? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think the budget that Shelley provided for from the clinical side is you know, is spot on. That's exactly what we would advise, you know, our parents who are looking for kind of the all in. In terms of the surrogacy side, it can vary. There's a lot of factors, Um, you know, kind of as a general headline, lowest end of the budget. If you are trying to maximize everything, I would say 115 to 120,000. If you are a little bit more open, but also if things don't go as well as they should, you know, you're looking at 150 to 160, including things like insurance, Um, you know, so generally for intended parents who need everything, you know, all the clinical side, egg donor, et cetera, through to the surrogacy side, I say a healthy budget is 200 to $215,000, Yeah, um, which I appreciate is is a huge number for a lot of people. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why the US is the gold standard because everything is there, but it also is a huge number mm-hmm. for most people. It is. And that's that's kind of the range that we talk to our intended parents about is that, you know, you you can do it for 200, but you just never know what's going to happen. So having this this upper upper range, and it also depends where you want to do it. You know, if you want to do it in California versus some other states, if you do, if you want the top end of stuff, do everything in California, choose the best clinic in the world, the, the whole thing, you are looking at, at 250. You know, you're exactly right. There are ways to maximize your budget. You know, if, if you want to wait longer for a surrogate who lives near your fertility clinic so that she doesn't have to travel, if you do want to wait for a surrogate who has health insurance so that you're spending less on that portion, there are ways to maximize the budget, but it's always that balance of how fast do you want to welcome your baby versus, you know, versus looking at your, at your overall budget. Um, Most agencies, ourselves included, have different packages. So there are some packages where you pay a little bit more and that has a little bit of not health insurance, but insurance for your journey, that redundancy built in, because as much as we would always love the first embryo transfer to take and the pregnancy to be smooth, it doesn't always. And so that's also something that intended parents have to consider. Yes, we want everything to go smoothly medically, but if it doesn't, what are the options that your agency is giving you? What are the options that your clinic is giving you in terms of paying upfront for multiple tries or having to kind of pay as you go? So those are some things that intended parents can consider against their budget. And Brian, from your point of view too, or, or from an attorney's point of view, you know, what, what type of uh, numbers can intended parents be expected to budget for, for for their legals in the US? Yeah, I think you know, if we're just strictly talking about attorney's fees, I think you should expect to pay something like $10,000 plus or minus a couple thousand dollars, depending on the, the jurisdiction and depending on the court costs, et cetera. 
And I think maybe just to add on to the the overall budget, I think that it's good to be cautiously optimistic because what I see from my perspective is that people, of course, come into it hoping for the best, but you have to understand that pregnancies are unpredictable and you you never know if the first surrogate's going to work out. And so you really have to pay attention to all of the agreements that you're signing along the way, your agency agreement, your clinic agreement, your agreement with your attorney to understand if you're going to have to pay redundant costs in the case that you have to be rematched with the gestational carrier, or if your first egg retrieval doesn't work, uh, or you don't, you don't have as many embryos as you're hoping for, because that's really where things can get loose on cost is that if, if the first surrogate or the first donor don't work out, then all of a sudden this thing that you didn't necessarily even contemplate gets introduced. And depending on what your contract said along the way, you might be looking at significant costs, or you might have, uh, like was mentioned, have insured yourself against those contingencies. And so that's also why I think it's good to talk to lawyers early on so that we can kind of help you understand how all these agreements along the way might affect the budget, assuming that things don't go perfectly the first time. Yeah, totally great, great advice. And I think it, it is all about, you know, working with, as Shelley talks about, you know, the village, making sure that you, you're surrounding yourself with this with this team of people who are there to navigate and help you at every stage of the journey. And particularly from a legal point of view, it's peppered all the way through the journey and it's such an important part of the journey. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Roe versus Wade. Yeah, we're going to go deep. You know, oh, well, not too deep, hopefully, because we've only got, a, you know, we haven't <laughs> got an unlimited amount of time. But this is impacting and people are asking us, you know, how is that going to impact and what type of things should they be considered? I don't know. I'm going to just throw it out there. Who's the best person to kind of give us some guidance on this? I'm, I'm happy to, to start, at least. I think the impact that Roe versus Wade being overturned has had is really not as substantial as I think it, it might seem on its face. Uh, we have always had in our contracts that the gestational carrier agrees to travel outside of her state if a pregnancy uh, needs to be terminated past the limits of the state laws that she's located in. And so even in a place like, for example, California, there were all already limits pre this new Supreme Court case that overturned Roe versus Wade. So most states in the United States would not allow for termination past viability. So even in those contracts, we would express that the surrogate would agree to travel outside of the state to terminate the pregnancy if there was something that had been detected beyond viability. And of course, so long as the gestational carrier agrees to that. Mm-hmm. So now that that applies to more states. So the real change here is that there are there is more risk to the health of each gestational carrier in these states where she is not permitted to terminate a pregnancy in her home jurisdiction because assuming something had to be done immediately, if that service was not available in her home jurisdiction, she would have to travel outside of that location and undergo that procedure in a place where it was legal. A second layer to this is that there are some states that are particularly uh, troublesome. Texas is an example. And so you know, without getting too much into the details of it, It is important as you are making your selection of the particular state that you're planning to work, that again, you communicate with your attorney so that you're comfortable with the circumstances of those laws in some of these states like Texas or Oklahoma, where there are pretty draconian laws that relate to termination of pregnancy and even impose civil civil and criminal liability upon folks. So that's something to be aware of. It is not widespread. The, The more widespread phenomenon is that 
uh, termination of pregnancy has been uh, significantly reduced to you know something like six weeks in many states. It has not been criminalized in most states. So in those states where uh, it is not criminalized, we're going to have contracts that say that she's going to travel outside of the state. And so we should still be able to have that procedure performed. Bigger picture is I've handled 7,000 plus surrogacies in my career at this point. I've had two cases so far where there's been termination. So it is not something that occurs a lot. It is an important thing to contemplate. It is fundamental to making the right match with your gestational care that you and she are on the same page, but also know that it is not something that all of us practitioners run into very often. I think that's really worth hearing that perspective there, Brian, because that's, you know, such a low number. But I also think, you know, that was really eloquently put. And I think that makes it really clear. Yeah. And for anyone who wasn't sure about the impact of Roe versus Wade, I think that, that summarizes really summarizes it really well. Thank you, Brian. Well, that was another great episode. And because we love you all, that's a two-parter. So next week, make sure you download part two. Don't forget, if you need your podcast fixed, we're back every Monday, proudly sponsored by Manchester Fertility, a leading fertility clinic with over 35 years of experience building families for people within the LGBTQ plus community. If you want to find out more about My Surrogacy Journey, then please head over to our website, mysurrogacyjourney.com or find us on Instagram, official My Surrogacy Journey. And if you like this episode, then please subscribe to the series. We'll have another episode coming out weekly. Thank you for listening. We have been your My Surrogacy Journey podcast hosts. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.